Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome back to the analysis.news. We're going to continue our discussion with Jeffrey Summers about the death of Gorbachev, dig into the last years of the Soviet Union and how Gorbachev's policies paved the way for the rise of the oligarchs. Be back in just a few seconds. So now joining us again is Jeffrey Summers. We're continuing our conversation. If you haven't watched part one, you really should because it sets up part two. Jeff Summers is a professor of political economy and public policy at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where he also serves as a senior fellow at its Institute of World Affairs. In addition to his academic work, he's been published in all kinds of big publications. And the list is in the first interview. So here's a quote, another quote from Jeff's article that uh, I found in Counterpunch. Gorbachev's reforms let loose creative forces, all right, just not the ones making the economy more productive, but rather those that gave rise to the post-Soviet oligarch and later Slaviki, which I understand means strong man, which mostly meant the military and intelligence agencies, later a Slaviki-dominated economy, end quote. So thanks for joining us again, Jeff, and explain how this his reforms that were supposed to help democratize uh, actually really led to uh, a state that was far from democratic and, and the chaos of the 90s. And, and then we get into the era of Putin. Yeah, I mean, so in endeavoring to democratize uh, the economy or to improve the economy, you have in Gorbachev a figure who assumes that first you need to democratize the society, which you know, this all sounds great, right? And he looks to Lenin to find inspiration and guidance for how to do this. Now, every official within the Soviet Union would have had their 43-volume edited set of Lenin's works, of which uh, I would say 99% of them never cracked the spine. Gorbachev was somebody who had cracked those spines, those book spines. He, uh, he knew those books, and he was in them all the time looking for guidance on what to do. And so he, uh, uh, again, wanted to have his glass nose first, you know, that you, you needed to open the society. And that this, you know, and this was because, of course, the Soviet Union did uh, stifle uh, innovation, and it did um, suppress uh, people voicing their opinions. And how could you... How could you uh, make a economy that was vibrant and dynamic in that kind of environment? Well, can I, let me ask a question here. You could. When you say suppressed, it in, suppressed innovation, now the Soviet Union beat the Americans to space. Yes. And it was a great humiliation for Kennedy and the United States. But God, that's innovation. That's science. Uh, I mean, they, they, it's not, you know, there was some real innovation going on there. I have a son who is college age and he's an aspiring rocket scientist and he never fails to remind me just how incredible some of the Soviet rocket designs were and that uh, the Americans uh, to this day are still having to rely on some of that technology. And in fact, I mean, just as an anecdote, uh, as you know, the Americans are in this intermediary stage, they haven't yet, you know, well, they actually have produced their new 
uh, rocket that is going to be able to launch a a, uh, a manned um, mission to the moon again. But you know, it, it keeps getting put off because of some engineering challenges. They'll get rid of those wrinkles eventually. But but for a while, for several years, in fact, when the shuttle wasn't working uh, any longer, they were decommissioned. You know, we were relying on these Soyuz rockets to get to the uh, International Space Station. And, uh, you know, during these tensions, of course, between the Americans and the Russians because of uh, Russia's uh, war in Ukraine, uh, you know, the Americans were making some snide remarks regarding how backward they, the Russians were. And the head of Russia's uh, space program said something to the effect of, well, you will not have access to our rockets anymore and you can use trampolines to get into space if you're so if you're so <laughs> advanced uh but 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 that's absolutely right there were certain sectors where the soviets were remarkably advanced so you know when they dumped resources and talent into areas they could do some uh, wonderful things there's no doubt about that yeah i know like i know my understanding because i knew a guy that was one of the first people pushing containerization in North America, that apparently that was originally developed in the Soviet Union, the whole concept of, of containers to transport from, you know, from ships to rail. And then the other thing, again, I haven't verified this, but I was also told that method of construction where the cranes go higher and higher as the buildings are built, apparently that's the Soviet innovation. So, I mean, there, there, there was, a, as you say, I mean, there was innovation. So what, how did it, you know, how did it get so much more bureaucratized and so paralyzed? Yeah. So uh, it, it, you have these different tiers of the Soviet economy, just like you do in any economy, uh, different tiers. Uh, but it was all those very top tiers that were displaying that uh, kind of dynamism. Uh, the lower tiers of the uh, economy, especially, you know, dealing with consumer products, etc., cetera, uh, services, uh, just... Uh, n not vibrant at all. Not that there was never any dynamism or a vibrancy even there. And in fact, there have been some interesting books published on the Soviet consumer culture because there was a, a consumer culture for the middle class, especially in places like Moscow and, and uh, Leningrad at that time. Uh, but, but overall, not very innovative and not uh, rewarding uh, people who displayed uh, um, you know, some degree of entrepreneurial uh, spirit. So uh, Gorbachev decides that he's going to democratize society. And then he, on the perestroika front, you know, on the politics and the economy front, starts to uh, think about how to deliver on this innovation there. Now, this problem of the Soviet economy being stagnant was one that had been recognized for quite some time. So in, in Leonid uh, Brezhnev, the guy who deposed uh, Khrushchev in uh, 62 or three and uh, or was it 64 and then uh, uh, you know died in 81 uh, his successor um, Yuri Andropov was a guy who was the head of the KGB and very very smart and he certainly recognized that the Soviet economy was one that had failed to modernize and keep up with you know the West. And that that had to be changed. So he knew that lots of, just like you know during the 1930s and so you know lots of new machinery, technology would need to be purchased uh, to modernize the economy, and that investments, big investments, would need to be made in improvements of its transportation. So, for instance, just you know the rolling stock, in other words, the 
you know, um, train cars, the locomotives, the um, uh, um, you know various container cars, etc. The state of the rail itself were in abysmal shape by the early 1980s. And you have to remember the country's really big, you know, a dozen time zones, which uh, in part was an advantage if you were planning for World War III. Now, the Soviets having having gone through uh, being uh, to their minds, attacked during World War One, certainly being attacked in World War Two, uh, assumed that there would be World War Three. They would be attacked again. Germany would rise. That this probably maybe in conjunction with the United States, and that they would again uh, be attacked in a generation or so. So they planned for it. So instead of uh, building their uh, uh, industry in places that were the most rational in terms of reducing transportation costs, they did just the opposite. They had planned inefficiencies. They put their manufacturing capacity spread all over the vast expanse of this country so that it would survive a, a war. Now, the problem is, is that introduced all sorts of costs, transportation costs, energy costs, time costs. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a more expensive way to run an economy, but it was a way to survive uh, World War III. So that was a problem. Uh, and so, and, and Dropoff was going to begin addressing that and uh, several other things. And of course, he kicks off as kidney failure. Doesn't last very long. And then he's replaced by another Brezhnev-like uh, uh, fellow, Chernyanko. Doesn't do anything. Doesn't last very long. Very ill. And, and you have to remember that the Soviet economy was also, uh, it had become dependent and somewhat lazy in terms of their uh, um, uh, use or reliance on these big oil and gas discoveries in Western Siberia in the 1960s. Uh, this is something that Vladimir Putin, by the way, has recognized and he's talked about. It. He just hasn't been able to fix it. Uh, but uh, Brezhnev uh, just relied on this cash cow. You know, the the, the oil uh, came in and that allowed him to keep upping the game in terms of uh, the Soviet military. You know, don't worry so much about agricultural productivity. Why? Because you can buy food on global markets. I mean, you know, including the United States, they're buying it from the United States. So, uh, um, you know, during the Brezhnev years, especially the 1970s, if you speak with you know people who were alive at that time in that part of the world, they'll they'll tell you, oh, yeah, those were the good years. You know, everything was stable. Uh, Brezhnev was delivering in terms of basic uh, consumer products, food, etc. Uh, but by the time you hit the 1980s. Huge neglect in investments uh, in terms of the economy. And, and of course, as we know, Paul, I know you're familiar with this, of course, uh, as I suspect many of your listeners are, the United States begins to launch somewhat of a counterattack against the Soviet Union. So you know, the United States and the Soviet Union are in this Cold War. And in the 1970s, uh, you know, the United States looks to be on the losing end of this as the Soviets are funding revolutions all over the world, creating instability, that's increasing commodity prices, very bad for the West. There's Vietnam, uh, you know, which the Soviets are supporting. And so by, you know, the time we get to the late Carter administration, you know, you have this Polish nationalist, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who's the head of the National Security Agency. And, um, you know, he literally says that we have to give the Soviets their own Vietnam. So, you know, he has his own kind of personal 
foreign policy for the United States, which he uh, he implements. And you know, he says, "Hey, we're you know we're going to bait the Soviets to invade Afghanistan. There's no way they're going to tolerate Islamic fundamentalism right on the, uh, the border of the Caucasus, where you know the Soviets have plenty of Muslims." Uh, and and he's absolutely right. So bait them in, give them their own Vietnam, as Brzezinski said, you know, in his own words, and then uh, we cooperate with the Saudis to drive the price of oil down. The, you know, the big thing that the Soviets sell in the international markets. So we drive the price of that down to 10 bucks a barrel. And uh, the Soviets find themselves with their pants down. You know, they've they got a war in, in Afghanistan. Now the price of oil has crashed and uh, they have to somehow figure out how to modernize without cash. Kind of sounds like the 1930s. Uh, again, with those uh, collapsed uh, grain prices. So they uh, um proceed anyway they have no choice and uh, gorbachev uh issues 1987 the directive on on enterprises uh and you know what he's thinking at this time is that well we've got the centrally planned economy just as we were discussing earlier uh, paul and you know the um all these state-owned factories they have to produce you know x quantity of this product or x quantity of that product and uh, it's not satisfying the, the, the needs of the Soviet people, especially in terms of their desire for consumer goods. And so that's followed by the Directive on Cooperatives, 1988. And so what um, uh, uh, Gorbachev says is to the state factories, hey, guys, our bet is that you see all sorts of opportunities for, for making and selling things in the economy that we don't see you know, with the central plan, the Goss plan. And we're going we're gonna to free you up. Go at it. If you, wanna, if you see something that you think you can produce, that there's a market for, uh, do it. Sell it. Uh, and keep the money. And so this was thought to be the way to begin modernizing the Soviet economy. Now, what happens? Well, first let me give some examples of successes. Now, the, these might appear you know, trifles too. You might just kind of laugh a little bit, but nonetheless, this is an actual way in which it was working. So let's take a look at the Soviet Republic of Latvia at this time. There's a, a big coal hose, you know, collective farm. And some of these were pretty big businesses, uh, by the way. And uh, it's in a place called Odyssey. And in Odyssey, the, the coal hose director decides that, well, instead of just growing potatoes, and then every year when harvest comes in, grabbing a bunch of college students and making them uh, um, harvest these things as you know part of their contribution to the state, you know, for no labor, for no 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 wages, uh, you know, doing it for the revolution, and then dumping them somewhere where they rot. Uh, let's do something different. Let's make potato chips. <laughs> so in Haraji, they they start a potato chip plant, and it's gangbusters. People love it. Uh, people a lot of you are buying these things up left and right. They love them. Who doesn't like potato chips with their beer? So they are selling these things like crazy. Next thing you know, they're buying um, uh, pickup trucks and SUVs from Toyota, and they're driving around, and everyone's saying, "Whoa, look at those guys! Aren't they special?" Uh, and 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 you know, it just, and it's still the biggest potato biggest potato chip company in Latvia. So it worked well. And then there was another collective farm that started making beer, Bauska beer. They did the same thing. So that was how it was supposed to work. But other things were happening as well. So instead of uh, making basic consumer goods, uh, some company directors decided, well, boy, you know, there's some opportunities here. So let's say 
you figured out that, well, as a state enterprise, um, instead of making things that the economy needs, I'm just going to use whatever procurement I'm allotted of, say, oil and brass or whatever, and uh, I'm going to sell it on the world market. And I'm going to pocket the arbitrage between the state price, which is next to nothing, and what the world price is. Now, this is kind of hard to do uh, because you're going to need connections. And you're going to have to get the stuff out of the country. And you're going to have to start utilizing things like offshore bank accounts. Uh, and so this is where this whole new world emerges. And not only that, but some of these enterprises were told that they could create their own banks. So they start creating their own banks. And they start making their own money, in effect. They start issuing debt, which the central bank has to back up. So it's it, it turns into the Wild West very, very quickly. But, but, but just to give you, just to elaborate on this Latvia example, uh, uh, for instance. So I just, just quickly want to, oh, just quickly yeah. reminding everyone, this is under Gorbachev. This is not under Gorbachev. Under, yeah, this is not Yeltsin. This, we're still yeah. in supposedly the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this, you know, this gets the steroid shot under uh, Yeltsin. <laughs> and it really goes wild. Uh, but uh, so this is happening under Gorbachev. And uh, the biggest port for the export of Soviet oil was in a place called Ventspils. It's a charming little port city on the Baltic coast in present-day Latvia. And, uh, well, you know, if you can figure out how to get oil and metals uh, trans-shipped there and then out, you're going to start making money. Now, who are the figures that start brokering this? Well, in this will help you to understand some of the tensions within the current uh, Soviet Union between the oligarchs of the Yeltsin period and those strong men today that, you know, are backed by Putin. In the 1980s under Gorbachev, the late, mid-late 80s, Gorbachev tasks uh, the KGB to help these factory directors start businesses. Because some of the products, it was assumed, you know, they're going to be sold abroad, etc. So he says, hey, you know, you guys know that stuff, the, the KGB, you are sophisticated. And uh, we've been having you use offshore bank accounts for generations to, you know, fund revolutions, you know, whether it's the Sandinistas, Nicaragua or something else. You know how to use all this shady, dodgy infrastructure to, to move money around. So help these these directors. Now, these directors, a lot of them will become the new oligarchs. They'll get fantastically rich. They'll shove the KGB guys to the side, and they are very resentful. They are stewing for years uh, over this, and it's Putin that actually slowly begins putting those KGB guys back in charge. Uh, so that that's a whole other issue. They're stewing because these guys who are doing factory direct the directors of these enterprises. Yeah. They're make cash starting to cash in. Oh yeah, and, they, they made them rich. And, and the quote unquote strongmen are 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 not getting their taste. No, they 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 exactly just as you put it. They did not get their taste, and man, are they angry about it. But getting back to the Gorbachev period now. So uh, if if you if you want to like start selling stuff, uh, you know, again, commodities, getting world prices, all that stuff, and their figures waiting now, like Mark Rich in the United States. Uh, who Bill Clinton famously pardoned on his last day in office, something that... That's the, the guy that created Glencore. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, um, uh, several other dodgy enterprises in Vienna uh, to facilitate all of this stuff. 
Uh, Jimmy Carter, of course, you know, said this is one of the most disgraceful things that any U.S. president has ever done. He was a huge contributor. Now, uh, uh, Mark Rich to uh, the Democrats and to um, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, but 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 people like Mark Rich start seeing this potential to engage these new figures emerging in the Soviet Union to uh, uh, get this stuff out onto global markets. And then what happens is you get the Komsomol guys in. You know, these are fast movers, shakers, young guys, mostly guys. You know, these are the young communists. And so they're, you know, ambitious. If you are young and ambitious and are looking to uh, make a mark for yourself, and so you, know, you join the young communists. And so not only does it, not only does it give you a channel for upward mobility, but a, a, a Soviet-wide network for doing so. And they have conferences. They all know each now other. Now, you, in your, in your article, you talk that the, uh, you know, most of the leaders over the decades were actually believed that, you know, they, they were, they believed in Lenin's objectives oh. and vision and so on. But yeah, these guys, the top leadership. and you say they weren't posers, but these guys yeah. are, are they not the posers? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're, 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 you know, just opportunists. Uh, a, a, an old friend of mine um, who was the head of not just publishing, but of all information for the Soviet uh, Latvian Republic during Gorbachev's reforms. So she was appointed by Gorbachev to open, you know, uh, information up in Soviet Latvia. She told me, you know, that the Communist Party was just filled with hacks and opportunists. And every once in a while you'd come across a true believer and the, the, the Communist Party, me, uh, the, the Communist Party people just they were uh, hating these true believers. You know, they, they were like, "Oh God, you're you know you're a dupe, and you're you know you're slow, you're stupid, you 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 know, you, and you still believe in all this stuff, and you know, they, you know, just get out of our way." Uh, but the people at the very top of the system, a lot of them still were true believers, although not all of them, but a lot of them. And uh, uh, well, at any rate, though, so these calm small guys who were you know from Vladivostok in the east to Riga in the west. So, you know, they, they were all in touch with each other. They all began opening these new enterprises to make money, figuring out things to sell or steal, sometimes legitimate, sometimes illegitimate. And in 1990, in a 1990, this had gotten to the point where these cooperatives uh, had started creating enough hard currency uh, cash flow that they, they needed institutions to handle. So the first legal currency exchange is set up in the Soviet Union in 1990 in Riga, two Komsomol guys. And uh, they had first made their money by, you know, they were very enterprising, hauling around Soviet rubles and duffel bags on trains. And there was a really slight arbitrage rate between Riga, Leningrad, and Moscow. And so they were making money just hauling it back and forth between all these places and making that little time. But then what they, you know, learned, of course, was imagine... If you could start getting all the Soviet rubles from all of these new cooperatives and, and exchange it for dollars, for Swiss francs, for British sterling, imagine the cut you could get on that. So these guys do that. They form the first legal currency exchange. And they're very blunt and open about what they're doing. They have a sign. It becomes known as Parks, which was the first and the biggest bank uh in 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 latvia and it finally went down in 2008 with the financial uh crisis uh but these guys were worth hundreds of millions of dollars but anyway uh their their sign that they used to have in their window uh, said we accept all currencies we ask no questions <laughs> uh and so guys from these cooperatives are coming from all over the soviet union 
you know, switching out their Soviet rubles for hard currency. And then they used to have another sign. This was, I think, all the way up until 1995, parks that said, uh, do your business with us. We're closer than Switzerland. <laughs> So it's is it, so it's money laundering. Is that what's driving? Those? Well, that's what it that's what it becomes. So you know the the, the metaphor because otherwise, who wants to buy the rubles? Nobody. Yeah, you know, everyone wants to get rid of these things as fast as they can, and especially the, uh, the you know the people who actually see how the economy works. They know this system but, is going to collapse. But if you can send some, if you can send some suitcases of drug money there and convert to rubles, and then you wind up with some real products. It's well, there's all sorts of opportunities, no doubt. Uh, and so what happens is that uh, you have this massive offshore financial infrastructure that is developed in Riga, but not just there, Tallinn a little bit, Vilnius a little bit. And all, you know, you can think of the Soviet Union after it collapses. It's like this huge sequoia that, you know, falls down and dies of old age. And then all these mushrooms begin sprouting off of it, living off of the dead tree. Well, that, you know, that's the Soviet economy in the 1990s. It's this big, huge tree that has fallen over. And there are all these mushrooms that are sprouting on it. Well, all that money has to go somewhere and hopefully out of the country because you never know if you're going to have a new government that's not going to be friendly to you. So everyone is anxious to send their money via Riga, you know, to London, Zurich, and New York. And the Americans are quite keen on this in the 1990s. They, they, they love it. So something like a quarter of a trillion dollars in money from the former Soviet Union ends up in the U.S. stock market uh, in the 1990s. Now, the U.S. gets a little upset about it when Eventually, the Iranians start making use of it, and the North Koreans, uh, and then they, and also um, the Taliban and others. And they think, eh, well, maybe this does need to be a little bit regulated. <laughs> uh, but in the 1990s, it's you know, gloves are off, do whatever you want. Let's send all this money to New York. And, and they're competing with some Western banks that like doing the same thing. <laughs> oh yeah, and so what the Western banks are doing is they're they're setting up offices in in Riga. Uh, so the there's actually a professional association for. Uh, offshore banks. It's called Shorex. And and uh, they were holding meetings openly in Riga. And, it, you know, it, it was about 10,000 bucks to attend uh, one of their meetings and, you know, where, in which they would teach you the ins and outs of you know, how to use all these uh, offshore networks. So if you were a factory director in Minsk, let's say in Belarus, and you wanted to steal a bunch of money, not pay taxes, they'd show you how to do it. So when I, inter when I interviewed Bruce Gallen, I asked him if by the, by the last month's or year or so of Gorbachev, had he essentially become uh, an instrument or even pawn for these rising, you know, very wealthy so-called communists? I mean, he really and Booz Gallen more or less said, yeah, that by by Gorbachev actually really becomes a, a real facilitator rather than just someone whose policies didn't go where he wanted them to go. Yeah, you know, so there's uh, a debate on this. I mean, so there's this one school, you know, the revolution from above school, uh, which states that the, you know, it was the top leadership of the country that wanted to take it down and then to, to profit off of it. Uh, I would, well, there's a lot of that, no doubt, uh, but not at the level of Gorbachev. I, I, I mean, I, I know Booz and I have immense respect for his integrity and uh, intelligence, much higher than my own. Uh, but uh, he. Uh, I, I don't know if I would agree with that uh, on Gorbachev. I think I think it was more a matter of um, Gorbachev's vanity, uh, and at a certain point he he loses control of this system. Uh, he is a decent man. He 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 does not want to use violence. I mean, you think about other empires and when they 
unwind. I mean, just the tragic violence that occurs. And he was being implored by loyalists, you know, to, you know, get out the stick and, you know, take care of uh, this before it's too late. And there was only one time that he did that in any significant way, and that was in Armenia. And that was because in Armenia, because of the whole ethnic issue with the Azeris and the, and the Iranians right on the border and all the rest, and the border started becoming way too porous. Uh, that was the one instance in which he used force and 200 protesters were killed. And his uh, late wife, Raisa, she said he was never the same even after that. He just he was just broken by the need to do that. But I think what happened with... Um, I think what happened with uh, Gorbachev was that um, as he was unable to reform the economy in the direction that he wanted, uh, and as he was losing control over it, he retreated into the one area where he could exercise agency, or at least where he felt he could, and where he was applauded, uh, and not just celebrated for doing so. And that is in the realm of um, uh, you know, nuclear disarmament. Uh, and, and how could you say that what he was doing was anything but admirable in, in that regard? I mean, he was unilaterally calling off the Cold War, just saying, we're not playing anymore. Now, one could argue that uh, he should have made use of that card to get more um, resources from the West to fund a transition. But even by the time he was able to get pennies, because, you know, the Western leaders, so now we're talking Bush, uh, 41, uh, uh, etc. Uh, you know, they knew the game was kind of coming to an end and they were just handing uh, Gorbachev uh, crumbs and those crumbs were disappearing. They were not being used for anything but um, theft. I mean, but they were supposed to be used for things like, you know, pulling the Soviet troops out of the GDR, building them new apartment buildings uh, uh, in in Russia or the Soviet Union. Soviet Union still exists at the time. None of that happened. That money just disappeared somewhere into the you know, black hole of the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and they were, you know, begging for food. I mean, so, you know, the, the whole damn thing had pretty much just collapsed by the end. I mean, it just was not functioning at all. And they couldn't even feed themselves but in the last half year of the existence of the Soviet Union. So, you know, I, I think he just retreated into this one world where he was still um, uh, respected uh, by international leaders. And 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 where he thought he could actually accomplish some good, but of course the whole the whole thing was falling apart. Yeltsin was humiliating him on a uh, you know near daily basis, and 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 this is where I would maybe take a little issue with Buzgalin as well. Again, a person who I have the most you know the hugest respect for, and he's so smart, and he's invited me actually to you know Russia a few times. I, I think the world of what he's done. Uh, uh, intellectually and, and his political contributions, but um, uh, and he knows the place, you know, so much better than I do. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I think, you know, you couldn't even just go to the people anymore. I mean, I think Gorbachev wanted to go. I mean, he really was a democratizer in a lot of ways. I mean, you could say, all right, he's trying to, you know, just create a Swedish style. Uh, democratic socialism, you know, which just means private business and some, you know, um, government regulation thereof. But, you know, he, I, 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 tragically, you know, I call him a, a figure, uh, you know, of Greek tragic proportions, and he really was. He he wanted to go to the people and have them back him, and they, they just loathed him. Uh, so he went to, you know, rallies uh, of with industrial workers in Russia and in Ukraine, 
and uh, said, hey, you know, we, we really want to keep this union together and uh, we, we, we really want to democratize your benefit. But by the end, by that last six months, Yeltsin would be able, be able to counter and say, you know, no, we want to get out of this union. And they have these really primitive ideas about economic development. So Yeltsin, you know, thought, he literally believed this, that if you dissolve the Soviet Union, that Russia would get rich, that Russia was supporting because of it in its central budget, all the other republics, which was true with the exception of one Republican Central Asia. But he thought that's what it was. It was a simple accounting thing that, you know, it's kind of like the argument that some people will make in the United States. If we could just get rid of all these welfare bombs, you know, imagine how rich we would be. So uh, that's what Yeltsin is saying. The workers are like, yeah, get rid of those bums in the other, you know, republics. And in Ukraine, the workers were saying the same damn thing. I mean, so when uh, you had uh, Gorbachev in Ukraine trying to get the workers behind him, they were like, imagine how rich Ukraine would be if we just detached from the Soviet Union. We got the Donbass with all this industry. We got the Black Earth Belt, which is one of the richest agricultural regions in the world. You just untether us from the Soviet Union and we're going to be fabulously rich. Now, as we know, even up until this day, three, days later, three decades later, the Ukrainian uh, economy still, its GDP is not equal to what it was during the Soviet period. You know, so it's just tragic uh, in terms of the results uh, for them as well, uh, in terms of you know their their uh, economy. So that the, the people were not behind him. The people were not behind him. And then, of course, you have the nationalists and the Baltic republics and in the Caucasus. You know, uh, he as he kept unleashing uh, freedoms, they quite understandably, they were like, all right, we got a taste of this. Let's just go all the way. I mean, you know, this is our opening. And and they ran for the exit doors, you know? So the, the Latvians and the Estonians and the Lithuanians and the Georgians, they just shot straight for the exits. And uh, they, uh, uh, you know, did everything they could to acquire or reacquire, in the case of the Baltic states there, or even Georgia to some extent, their, their independence, you know? understandable uh but um you know gorbachev was getting no cooperation from anyone hmm. uh, you call him the the wrong man at the wrong time uh yeah. so in our next i know that's it that's it i don't know if there was a right man for that time yeah but i think i think that yeah. is the point by by that yeah. point uh yeah. the the writing was on the wall um okay so in the next segment we're going to talk about this split uh, between the uh, oligarchs that emerge in the 90s, uh, emerge largely from the party and the bureaucracy, because there's always a good question, like, you know, the, the, the public assets were sold off in the 90s. But where'd these guys get money to buy these assets? Even if, uh, I, I, was it Booz Gallon telling me? One, one of these factories was worth, you know, billions, and somebody yep. bought it for four or five million, Yep. Okay, but where'd they get the 45 million if they were supposedly in socialism and in the party? At yep. any rate, we're going to talk about this split between them and the state security, the military, and, and then eventually, you know, the rise of Putin and, and who he represents. Uh, so that's incoming segment and segments. So mm -hmm. thanks very much, Jeffrey. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget the donate button, subscribe, get on the email list. And uh, the next part will be coming soon.